Brian again, your lunatic friend, telling more of the story of my own life. In Jesus and Music, it's hard to imagine that between 1984 and 1986, I'd gone from zero to 60 in the blink of an eye. My concert schedule had filled up pretty fast because it was a lot cheaper to bring one guy in and every church had a youth group. And Have Yourself Committed was the perfect announcement to the next generation. I was going to have to learn how to handle a whole show without a guitar solo, but I had a dual cassette player and a small DX7 keyboard. I would play the background tracks and the keyboard live and sing over the whole thing. But it still felt awkward being on stage by myself. The songs were okay, but it was the transitions between songs where you had to say something. I'd always let my songs do the talking, and I might have should have stayed there, because I got more trouble saying stuff between songs than I ever thought I would. My manager would develop a formal apology letter. It was pre-written with fill-in-the-blanks, and somewhere in that letter was what Brian should have said, and I'm really sorry that I didn't. Until now, I had never realized how smart Alec I was and that sarcasm was like a second language to me and I had a microscopic attention span and when you combine that with popularity the impression is that you're arrogant I used a lot of self-effacing humor to deflect my own nervousness but it was often perceived as flippancy most of the time I was playing to an audience that was at least 10 years younger than me but then in my 30s that might have been my maturity level I still remember one concert playing for a bunch of high school kids where I was forgetting the words and messing up the keyboard part in every song I was so embarrassed from my presentation that I immediately left the stage at the end and I hid in a closet until the room emptied out. And there was one other disaster where I was playing to like a thousand kids and they were so rude and unruly that I couldn't even keep their attention. I finished my set, grabbed a broom, and threw it into the audience and said, here, clean up when you're done. So yeah, I didn't always bring the love of Jesus. I was sincere in my songs, but in the early days, I don't think I communicated that sincerity very well. And a lot of churches expected me to bring a sermon at the end, doing an altar call, but to me there was something about altar calls that felt manufactured. Nevertheless, public decisions for Christ was the main gauge for your effectiveness. To me it felt like chia pet evangelism. Just add water and watch it grow in front of your eyes. Commitments may not stick, but at least you looked good doing it. In my years in the Sweet Comfort Band, I was also a correspondence counselor for new converts at Calvary Chapel of Riverside, and I was aware that commitments without follow-through were short-sighted. The Billy Graham Association reported that there was about 3% follow-through with people who made a choice to follow Jesus. Yeah, concerts and crusades always make the headlines, while discipleshippers go completely unnoticed. Let's face it, you gotta start somewhere, but I was certainly aware of the people who had to stay behind in the town I just left, and they were the ones who did the real work. By 1986, Light Records was already asking me to do another record, and I didn't notice it then, but I might have been trying to be younger than I actually was, feeling like I needed to bring more energy and more flamboyance. I wanted to do something that was twice the speed of Have Yourself Committed. Something that just screamed enthusiasm. And at the time, my enthusiasm revolved around street bicycling. I had a 12-speed motobacon that I would ride with some other friends. And the running joke was that we should be called the Holy Rollers. And that would become the idea for the next record project. And there was nothing more energetic than Pentecostal black gospel music. It just made you want to scream and dance. I'd been to a few black gospel churches that did this thing called a praise break. It was the most fun thing that I'd ever seen in church. But I was hardly qualified to play that kind of music. But I remember creating the bass line in a sound sampled loop. And it sounded good all by itself. And I pretty much wrote the whole song on the bass line and three simple chords on the piano. But musically, I knew I was over my head and I was going to need to find some help. Because I was a white guy and I only had a little bit of soul. People would notice it though. But it was mostly because I grew up on Sly and the Family Stone, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, and Smokey Robinson. And my 
My favorite kind of screaming was James Brown. Ironically, I wasn't aware of a lot of black gospel artists because between CCM and black gospel was a significant separation between genres. You had gospel and then you had CCM. Except for Andre Crouch and the Disciples. I'd been to a few of his concerts. I remember standing backstage next to his bus. That's when I first met one of his singers, Danny Bell Hall. She opened the bus door and invited me up. I probably sounded like an idiot when I said, yeah, I sing too. Especially because she had a booming voice all of her own. After meeting her, I became aware of John P. Key, Fred Hammond, and Donnie McClurkin, to name a few, and I heard enough to know that I wasn't going to bring it better than that. I just want to tip my hat to that genre of music. And it turns out that Light Records had signed gospel artists, including Andre Crouch, The Winans, and Walter Hawkins. It was the label that would introduce me to Howard McCrary, a phenomenal piano player who would play on Holy Rollin' and make that thing sound legitimate. He would also direct the choir, and later we would bring in Tower of Power horn section to make it just a little different, all recorded at Salty Dog Studios in Hollywood. We only did two songs at Salty Dog, Holy Rollin', and then we had Tower of Power playing on Only Wanna Do What's Right. I remember writing them a check, and baritone sax player Doc Kupka saying, you know we're gonna spend this on sin, so yeah, not everybody that played on my records was a believer, but what better place to be an influence than rubbing shoulders with people who don't believe like you do. One thing I remember at Salty Dog was having the management of the studio come in and ask us if we could take a two-hour break so that another band could fix something. Turned out the band's name was Alabama, and for years people had been saying that I looked like the drummer. Next thing you know, I'm standing in front of Mark Herndon, the drummer for Alabama. We don't look at all alike, I told him. Must be the glasses. I ran into a lot of other groups hanging around Hollywood. I met Kenny Marks, loved the name of his band, The Remarkables, and an all-girl band in Christian music called Rachel Rachel. But my producer, Larry Brown, had taken the money he had gotten from my first record and built his own studio at his house. Glendale, California was a lot closer to my house. I remember at the time, Steve Taylor lived right down the street, and from my house to Glendale, now it was only an hour and a half, one way. And we had unlimited time in the studio then, where nobody could interrupt our session to fix stuff. On Holy Rollin', we still didn't have a big budget. It was good to do the title track in a real studio, but the rest of the stuff was cut and paste. A bass part here, sound sample there, drum parts and pieces. But once the tracks were done, I could sing it down in one take. I'll just pick up where we left off in the next episode. Again, I talked about a song that I thought was on Have Yourself Committed. Nope, So Far So Good was on this record. And that's why I'm your lunatic friend. I can't even remember my own story. But thanks for giving NutshellSermons.com a listen. And don't forget the real nutshell two minutes long, and maybe more of a point where I'll just try to give you the gist.